Let's pray to the Lord. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to see what your scriptures say, your divine revelation. Help us to feed off of it, to absorb it, to to live it out and not just be hearers only. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the light that it gives, the understanding that it gives. Uh, We pray that we would see you more and see Christ more and see how we might live in a way that would honor you and bring you more glory with our lives. Lord, we thank you so much for this time. We pray that you would bless it by your Holy Spirit to exalt Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Are you good at interpreting signs? Are you good at interpreting signs? Signs indicate something. They, they point beyond the sign itself. They bear witness to something. A sign encourages our minds to think a certain way or our hearts to to feel or desire a certain way or our wills to choose and act in a certain way. Signs point to something. They try to encourage us in a certain way. Almost anything can be a sign under the right conditions, even flowers. So picture this in your mind. A guy and a girl, they're in a relationship Things seem to be going okay, but suddenly the girl, she starts to think, I don't know if he's the right guy. I don't know if I should keep getting to know him or if I should just break up with him. And all of a sudden, she's at work, and she receives a bouquet of flowers. He delivered them. He sent them to her. And she says, this is a sign. This is it. This is... I knew this would happen. This is a sign. But it's not the kind of sign you might think. Her face droops. She's sad. This is a sign. I knew it. I hate this color flowers. This is not my favorite type of flower. This is a sign I should break up with him. And she's convinced. But then she talks to her coworkers and her other friends and her roommates. And they encourage her. Look how thoughtful that was. And in conversation, she starts to realize, wait a minute, I've never told him my favorite flowers or my favorite colored flowers. How could I see this as a sign I shouldn't get to know him and I should break up? This is a sign that he really cares for me. He's so thoughtful. This is a sign that he wants to get to know me more. This is meant to be. How good are you at interpreting signs? Signs can be subjective. In our passage today, Gideon, the main actor, the main human actor, he receives three different signs from the Lord. And the challenge is not just how to interpret them, but how should he respond to them. This is an important study for us this morning. We're going to consider Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8. So if you have a Bible, turn to Judges chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some under the seats around you. Open up to page 205. Page 205. We're in the book of Judges. We don't normally look at three chapters in a sermon, but it's important to catch the whole sweep of Gideon's life because there's some things that we can learn from it. And as you're turning there to Judges chapter 6, 
I want to remind you that the book of Judges spans 300 years, and it comes right after the Exodus, and the Mosaic leaders have all died, and a new generation has arisen. It's not yet time for the monarchy, King Saul, King David, all these things. It's in between that time, when Israel has no king, and everyone starts to do what's right in their own eyes. And we've been looking in several sermons through Judges, taking one episode at a time, and today we are looking at Gideon's life. Uh, So today we're not going to read all three chapters in one big piece. What we're going to do is read a little bit as we go, and maybe even summarize some places. So keep your Bible open, be ready to flip around between chapters 6 all the way through the end of chapter 8. And I pray that we would come to understand how God works and comes along Side us in our weakness, how God gives signs, how God shows himself faithful. I pray that we'd come to understand how Gideon's life fits into the whole context of the book of Judges. It's fascinating. So let's begin. Let's read the first couple of verses and the last few verses of our passage to get the full picture, to frame it. Start in chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to read the first four verses. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves, and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. Midian overpowers Israel at the start. But let's see how it ends. Let's go ahead and flip to the ending. Chapter 8. Let's just put our eyes on verse 28. Chapter 8, verse 28. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. So the stage is set. This has been happening over and over in the book of Judges. God's people sin. God hands them over to their enemies. Things get really, really bad. But by the end of the story, the land has rest. In this case, 40 years. And we're used to this by now as we've gone through Judges. How is God going to do it this time? Who's he going to raise up? There's no designated king. He has to raise up somebody, right? What's he going to do? Gideon's life is one of these judges who's raised up. He's a judge not because he's hearing court cases and he's banging a gavel. He's a judge in terms of military might. He's bringing judgment on God's enemies. That's what it means to be a judge at this time. And the structure of this narrative unfolds from beginning to end, like we just saw. It unfolds in a way that three miraculous signs are given to Gideon. Fire, fleece, and a frightful dream. And before these three signs are given, there's some practical signs on the front end of his life that just tell us signs of the times, how how bad things have gotten in Israel. And then after these three miraculous signs, there's again practical signs. 
They don't seem supernatural, but they just show us exactly. They point us to what's really taking place here in Israel. So the structure, if you like to take notes, uh, the way we'll walk through this today, we'll talk about some practical signs, some miraculous signs, and then some more practical signs. First, some practical signs. The people do evil. Their enemies overwhelm them. And the people cry out to God. This is very typical of the book of Judges. It's practically showing us how how bad things are. Did you remember what we just read in chapter 6, back in verse 2? How Midian overpowered Israel? It had gotten so bad that verse 2 tells us they hid themselves in the mountains. They made dens. They they went into caves and, and strongholds. It had gotten so bad because not only was Midian a physical threat, but they would swoop down on the people and take all of their crops and their livestock. It would be one thing to have a next-door neighbor that you didn't like. Maybe they oppressed you. Maybe they intimidated you. Maybe if you stepped on their grass, you know, they would push you down, push your children down. That would cause a fight, right? It would be another thing if that same next-door neighbor went into your home, raided everything out of your fridge, took your car keys, drove your vehicle away, took your bicycle, whatever mode of transportation, took all your clothes. That'd be a really bad neighbor, wouldn't it? That's the kind of enemy Israel has. They're not just physically threatened. Their very lives are threatened in the fact that they have no food. And Midian's crafty, the Midianites, the people of the east, they, they'll wait till Israel grows crops, then they come and take all the crops. It's humiliating. It's so bad they're hiding in caves and dens. This is showing us how bad it's gotten. It's a practical indicator, a sign that points us to the fact that sin takes us lower and lower, deeper and deeper in pain. As the book unfolds, this is the first time we've heard Israel is hiding in caves. It's so bad. Sin's consequences get worse as they go on. Do you believe that? As Christians, we understand that sin is not something that can just be managed a little bit. If we, you don't have to turn there, but if we remember previous portions of the book of Judges, there were times when it was 15, 20 years even of oppression by enemies. Here it's only seven years, so on the surface it might not seem that bad. Just seven years in the hand of Midian. But these seven years are worse than those previous 15 or 20 years by others who oppressed them. Sin has ugly and tragic and painful consequences. So what happens? Well, it doesn't take 20 years this time. It's so bad that only after seven years the people cry out. Here's another practical sign. Verse 7, chapter 6, verse 7. The people cry out to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, verse 8, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And at the end of verse 10, take a glance at verse 10, how it ends. But you have not obeyed my voice. So here's a practical sign. A sign that God is saying, I've already told you how to be delivered. I've already shown it to you. 
This is a practical sign that Israel is looking for anything else other than God's word to redeem them. They cry out for help. He sends a prophet. The prophet speaks, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. You haven't obeyed my voice. There's no mention of repentance there after verse 10, is there? God sends them a prophet before a military judge, and I think it's instructive. I think it's instructive because when we are in sin, before we need to get out of the consequences of sin, we need to have theological understanding of what sins we are doing, who we are sinning against, what the remedy is, not just that the circumstances change, the pain. So God sends a prophet to give them theological understanding first before he would deliver them. But God doesn't just send a prophet. He's going to send a judge. He raises up Gideon. Look there with me at verse 11. We're going to read 11 through 17. I want you to get the flavor of, of what it was like for Gideon to suddenly be raised up and called out to be a judge. Verse 11, chapter 6. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. He's so fearful, he's taking care of the crops in a place that's unusual so that nobody would find him. He's fearful of the enemy. He seems like a normal guy. Verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon is asking questions. He's doubting if it's really God, because, God, if you were really with me, I wouldn't be in this much trouble. But I love how the Lord responds in verse 14. He doesn't entertain his foolish questions. God hasn't abandoned them. He's talking to them. He hasn't abandoned them. The reason they're in bondage is their own sin. But verse 14, here's what the Lord says to Gideon's questions. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he, Gideon, said back to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm I'm the least in my father's house. This, This sounds a lot like Moses when he didn't want to go when the Lord called him. Verse 16, the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And verse 17, and Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Would God's voice be enough for the people? He sent a prophet. No, they didn't obey his voice. Would God's voice be enough for Gideon? We're not sure. He's got faith and unbelief all mixed together. He says, Lord, show me a sign. Prove it. Here's where we shift gears. We get into the miraculous. Okay, Gideon, you want me to prove it? 
You want me to prove that I really am God? Buckle up. Here you go. Three miraculous signs are about to hit Gideon's life. And here's what we want to do. We want to we read about these three signs. But I want you to notice not so much what the sign is, but what effect the sign has on his heart. Because I believe that's the instruction for us this morning of what God has for us. Three miraculous signs, fire, a fleece, and a frightful dream. These all show how faithful God is, how fearful Gideon is. Take note of verse 21. Gideon had brought, brought the Lord some food, which was precious at this time, an offering. Verse 21. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consume the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Verse 22, Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon asked, Show me a sign. The Lord miraculously sends fire and vanishes. And yet, even after the angel of the Lord vanishes, he still talks to Gideon. Mind blown. The Lord can speak visibly in front of me, and then he can speak when he's not there, and there's fire. Gideon's terrified. He thinks he's going to die. The Lord comforts him. So the way his heart responds to this first sign of fire is fear and trembling, terror and death. But God comforts him. And part of his response to this sign is given there in verse 24. Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. But then something happens. That night, the Lord tells Gideon, Gideon, come here, your first assignment. Before you strike down Midian, Gideon, I want you to go to your father's house, your hometown, and I want you to tear down the idols of Baal that are there. Tear it down. And Gideon goes and obeys, but he does it at night because he's so afraid. He tears down the altar of Baal. That next morning, the people come out, and they inquire, who did this? And it shows us really how how bad Israel has gotten at this point because they want to kill whoever did this, whoever tore down these altars. Rather than worshiping God and killing one who would set up a false altar, they want to kill one who would take down a false altar altar. Gideon's father steps in the midst and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yes, it was my son Gideon, but if Baal, if he's a real God, let him contend for himself. It might seem weird to think, why is God asking Gideon to tear down an altar? He, he told him to go fight Midian. What? It seems like a confusing story already. But it's again reminding us, the greatest enemy is not something out there our consequences of our sin. The enemy is our sin and idolatry itself that threatens us. So God calls Midian to, to, God calls Gideon to tear down that idol before he fights Midian to show there's a priority here. Sin and idolatry is heavier in my eyes than some enemy that might attack you. But Gideon's weak and afraid. His dad comes to the rescue. But in all this, after Gideon tears down this altar, put your eyes there on verse 32. 
kind of a summary statement, verse 32. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. He got a new name. And then we get the definition of what that means. It says, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, for he broke down his altar. So Gideon walks around with this new name. It's like a badge of honor. He's the guy that obeyed the Lord and tore down an altar. But it's about that time of year again. Midian's going to come and take the crops. So Gideon gets a bunch of troops ready. He's going to go fight Midian because that's what God had said. But here's where the second miraculous sign comes in. The sign of the fleece. The sign of the fleece. Look at chapter 7, verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you said, red flag right there, if you'll do what you've already said, Lord, God's already said it. He he doesn't need to go beyond this, but he is. Lord, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, verse 37, behold, I'm, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And if there is dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground around it, I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So twice he says, as you have said, but that's not enough. Lord, I want to put this fleece down. The fleece has to be wet, but everything else has to be dry. If you do this, Lord, I will know that you're going to do what you said you would do. Lord, give me this sign. Show me a sign, Lord. And here's what happens. Verse 38. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Wow. It happened exactly as he demanded of God. Exactly as he wanted it to go. But notice the effect on his heart. Even after Gideon put his own hands on the fleece to to test it and wring it out, even after God stooped down to grant his request, God didn't even rebuke Gideon here. Gideon's already convicted. His heart doubts the very sign he just received. Because verse 39 tells us, Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please, let it be dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground, let there be dew. So he wants a reversal. Perhaps he's doubting, well, well, maybe there was something going on where the fleece sucked up the moisture and that's why it's dry. And he starts having these doubts. We don't know what all his doubts are. But we know Gideon's not keeping his word. He said that's all he needed, one sign. But he's asking for a second. Lord, don't be angry. I've got to ask for one more. Verse 40, here's what God does. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground there was dew. So God proves faithful even though Gideon is showing a lot of weakness here. A lot of self-contradiction here. A lot of difficulty interpreting what's the sign mean. I, I can't trust that. Lord, I need another one. But worst of all, did you notice how Gideon's heart responded to this second sign? No worship. No thanks. No praise. Fleece part one. Here's fleece part two. 
It doesn't say that he built an altar and thanked the Lord. No worship at all. Keep keep looking there. Look look in chapter 7, verse 2. 7, verse 2. Gideon has the army. He just had this fleece encounter. And then the Lord said to Gideon in verse 2, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Gideon, these guys didn't have that fleece encounter like you did. And it says in the, the book, of Deuteronomy, if anyone's fearful, you can let them go home. That was a, a law within Israel and their warfare. So Gideon does that. And it dwindles, dwindles the troops down to 10,000, but God still says that's, that's not enough. Gideon, you've seen this fire. You've heard me speak to you. You've seen the fleece, part one, part two of the fleece. You have everything you need. I'm going to whittle down your army even more. That shouldn't bother you, Gideon. You've had signs to prove I'm going to do what I'm going to do. So God whittles down the army even more. The men come to a brook to drink water, and whether they lift it up to their face to lap the water or whether they kneel down to drink, God just using, uses that as a dividing line. And he's left with 300 guys, 300 men. Gideon shouldn't be afraid to only have 300. He's had all these signs, but he is afraid. So this third miraculous sign comes. Here's here's the third sign God gives him right here. A frightful dream. The third sign. Look look with me there, chapter 7, verse 8. 7, verse 8. We'll read 8 through 15. Verse 8. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, how could you be afraid, Gideon? But if you are afraid, verse 10, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. Is Gideon afraid? He shouldn't be. But yes, he goes down with his servant. Verse 13. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Verse 15, look at how Gideon's heart responds to this sign. A sign that he didn't demand of the Lord, but the Lord gave him. Verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. You see what's going on here? When Gideon demands a sign of God, and God gives it, he stoops to his level here, I'll give it to you. 
that doesn't do his heart good. But when God gives him a sign that he wasn't even knowing what to ask for, it encourages his heart. It causes him to worship, to thank the Lord, to speak of God. What's going on here? And what is it about that third sign, a dream, being just something spoken? He didn't see any magical sparkles in the air. He, just, he heard some guys talking about a dream. He heard something. Well, God's Word tells us in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of Christ. That third sign was with the ear, not the eye. And I love how Puritan Richard Sibbs, a pastor, he said about the ear and the eye. He said, hearing begets seeing in religion. Death came in by the ear at the first, Adam hearing the serpent. And he shouldn't have heard that serpent. Death came in by the ear. So now life comes in by the ear. We hear and then we see. Psalm 48, 8. As we have heard, so we have seen. It's true in religion. Most of our sight comes by hearing. Hearing is that sense of learning, that sense of seeing. This is the way God has orchestrated it. Therefore, we should maintain all that we can to behold the glory of the Lord in his word and hear much. What does this mean for our lives? Before we look at some of the final practical signs of Gideon's life and Israel, what are we supposed to do with these three miraculous signs? What what hope is there for us? Some of you listening in this moment are very spiritual, maybe even superstitious, and you see signs all over the place. Some of you are very close-minded that signs take place today. You're skeptical. This kind of stuff doesn't happen. It only happened in Gideon's day. And there's a range of thinking on signs. So how should a Christian interpret signs? Do they even happen? Well, I think this passage gives us three things that we can package up and take with us when we leave this place today to encourage our hearts, our friends, our family. This passage tells us what is our posture towards signs. We need wisdom. Three principles. Jot these down. Principle number one, being skeptical of signs or denying their existence in the past, present, or future, it's not biblical. Being skeptical of signs or denying their existence in the past, present, or future is not biblical. God uses them in the Old Testament, the New Testament, times to come. Principle number two, an unhealthy craving or a demanding that God give you signs is not good and it will not do your heart good. An unhealthy craving or demanding that God give you signs is not good and this will not do your heart good. The third principle, number three, God is able to give signs as he pleases, but they are not normative for confirming his will. So treat them with discernment. God is able to give signs as he pleases, but they are not normative for confirming his will. So treat them with discernment. I think it's worth explaining what those three principles mean. Here's an explanation of of why those are valid biblical principles. 
Test yourself. Ask yourself, do you agree with these three? That first principle, if you're skeptical of signs or deny their existence in the past, present, future, that's not biblical. How can you say that? Well, Jesus performed signs. So to say that they don't exist is to deny what Christ did. And you might be thinking, well, I don't deny that they happened back then. They just don't happen now. Okay, well, the book of John would say otherwise. The book of Acts would say otherwise. Acts 4, 29 and 30, the believers are praying that the Lord would would show signs and wonders. Old Testament, New Testament, the king of Ahaz and Isaiah. I mean, old, new, time of Christ now. The Bible talks about signs happening. We're warned that in the last days, the coming of the lawless one, the activity of Satan, will come with all powers of signs and wonders to try to deceive. So the Bible says signs really do happen, even now. But the second principle, to crave them in an unhealthy way, to seek them out, demand that God give them to you, this is not good. How do we know that? Well, to seek a sign in a way that you demanded of God is testing God. That's what Gideon said in the passage. Let me test you one more time. And in Deuteronomy 6.16, we're told, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus even quotes this in Matthew chapter 4 when the devil tempts him. Satan said, hey, jump down, throw yourself down off the top of this, this pinnacle here. The angels will scoop you up. And he actually quotes a psalm. And Jesus says, you shouldn't put the Lord to the test. You shouldn't demand that he make a miraculous sign happen in the moment. This is a real temptation for us, but we have to see the pride and folly. It's a temptation to want to have a sign in a moment. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 33, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Demanding them, though, on our terms is foolish. I mean, imagine if I demanded right now, God, I want this Bible to levitate. And stay right here and levitate to prove to everyone that this is your holy word. And it doesn't happen. Or imagine if I said, Lord, I want, I want my car to, to flip on its side. And when I go out in the parking lot, I'm going to see it flipped on its side. And that's going to prove to me that you're powerful and you exist today. That may sound weird. But think about if that really happened. I demanded it and it really happened. My first response would be to doubt. Did somebody hear me pray that? Was this a prank? Did this really happen? Was there a small tremor, an earthquake? Was, what's going on? You would doubt it. But even if you didn't doubt it and you thought, that's true, wow, my car flipped over on its side. How are you then going to move out from that experience and start telling other people? I prayed that the Lord would do this, and he did. Somebody might say, oh, does that mean I get to ask God for whatever sign I want, and he's going to do it? Well, no. It's up to your own creativity and imagination. Do you see the folly with billions of people on the planet if God operated this way to give us the signs we demand in the moment? How crazy and chaotic things would quickly turn out to be. Seeking out a sign, craving it, demanding it, erodes our trust in the fact of 2 Corinthians 5-7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. That third principle, that God is able to give signs as he pleases, but they're not normative for confirming his will. We need discernment. The Bible says in Romans 12, 2, 
Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. When it says by testing that you may discern the will of God, it doesn't mean put God to the test. Scripture doesn't contradict Scripture. It means testing, the trying out. Discern God's will as you're, you're trying to live for Him. You're trying to discern what's good and pleasing, acceptable to Him. We need discernment because signs can be evil. It's not the normative way of confirming His will because there will be signs that tempt you to believe His will is something other than His word. Revelation thirteen four, It, speaking of an evil beast, performs great signs even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast. Never let a supposed or claimed or real sign draw you away from God's word. Mark thirteen twenty two, Christ says, For Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders, to lead astray if possible the elect, be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. The normal way God leads us and speaks to us and, and confirms his word is with the word. Even the apostles who saw great signs and wonders and had experiences of Christ, Peter would say things like, we have something more sure. More sure than signs and experiences with Jesus. Second Peter 1.9 says, we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. So I know this might seem abstract, but it really comes to play when you're offered opportunities to have palm reading or tarot cards, or when you're at an Asian restaurant and there's fortune cookies there. This is real. If you open up a fortune cookie and you read it and you think, oh my gosh, this is a sign to do this or that. Is that commending God's word in that moment, or is that commending just kind of what your heart already wants to do? We should test signs. God knows our craving and temptation. So whether it's fortune cookies or cloud formations in the sky, dreams while you sleep, number sequences on license plates, whatever it may be, God can use signs, yes, but the normal way he reveals his will is through his word. Maybe a sign will come into your life that confirms his word. Maybe there'll be signs that come into your life that tempt you to go away from it. No matter how convincing and real that is, we've already been told what to do. Let's close with a few practical signs. What happens in Gideon's life after he sees these miraculous things? The fire, that fleece moment, that frightful dream. Does he go around and start telling everybody about these signs? Here's what happens. I want you to see this. Look at how his countrymen treat him after he's pursuing the enemy. Chapter 8, verse 1. The men of Ephraim say to him, What is this you've done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. Gideon had 300 men. He went after the enemy. Their battle plan is crazy. I would encourage you to read it this afternoon. They just hold up torches and throw jars down and blow trumpets. They don't even have swords, and the enemy runs off. They're chasing the enemy. And now Ephraim, one of the tribes of Israel, Gideon, why in the world didn't you call us to fight? Do you think you're better than us? And Gideon says this weird thing about grapes in a field. He basically says at the beginning of chapter 8, look, 
you guys are, are better than us. You all captured some of the princes of the enemy. The, the gleanings of your grapes are better than our whole grape harvest. You're better than us. And so it subsides. They're not mad at him. But as he's pursuing the enemy, Gideon gets more hostile feedback from others. So that sign that, Idiot, that Ephraim was questioning him harshly, that's a sign that, wow, Israel, they're not really playing nice together. They're brothers. They're tribesmen. They're at odds. Here's, here's a practical sign of how bad it's gotten. When one of God's people chases God's enemy, the other of God's people are mad that they weren't the one who got to chase after God's enemy. There's rivalry. It's a practical sign of how bad it is. Look at verse 6 of chapter 8. Verse 6 and verse 8. Verse 6, the officials of Sakoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? And from there, verse 8, he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. The men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sakoth. So he goes up to these people and says, Hey, you're my tribesmen. I need some food. I'm pursuing the enemy. And they say, Do you already have the enemy in your hand? Remember, at this time, food is precious. We're not going to give you any food. This is another practical sign of how much rivalry and friction and even hatred and self-doubting are among God's own people. And Gideon doesn't pray, Lord, show me a sign of what I should do. Gideon just rashly goes ahead and says, when I come back and I do have the enemy, I'm going to teach you a lesson. He goes and he captures the enemy. He comes back. And he does. He whips them with thorns and briars. He even kills his own countrymen in pride. The enemy then questions Gideon in chapter 8, verses 20 to 21. Gideon's son is afraid to kill the enemy, so Gideon does it himself. And as the sun closes on Gideon's life, the sun is setting. Imagine if you were in Israel at this time and you read the local newspapers. Wow, Gideon saw fire from the Lord. Gideon tore down the altars of Baal. Gideon led an army and he whittled it down to 300 and he led them to attack the kings of Midian. Gideon had this special fleece that God did for him. Gideon captured the enemy and saved us. And people are puffed up about Gideon so much so that they say in chapter 8, verse 22, the men of Israel say to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, your grandson. Make a dynasty for us. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But verse 23, this sounds like a really good sign, a practical sign of the times right here. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Stunning. That is a godly statement. but he doesn't live it out. In verse 24, Gideon says, I'm not going to be king, but let me have all your gold. Let me make a request of you, all you guys. Hey, give me your gold, your earrings from the spoil. Verse 26 talks about crescent ornaments and pendants and purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. Gideon takes these, and he makes an idol out of it. He makes an ephod, an ephod. In Exodus 28, we're told an ephod is something a priest would wear. It's sleeveless. It's a breast piece. The priests would wear it as they're ministering in the temple of the Lord. It it carries divine significance because holy things are done wearing it. You can seek the Lord's will. Pray to the Lord. You can be in his presence with it. It's just for the priest. Gideon tries to make one out of gold as a trophy for himself. 
and it becomes a snare to Gideon and his family. And then in verse 30, Gideon has 70 sons. One of his sons is named Abimelech. I mean, what's the point of a story just kind of fiddling out of control? We have these miraculous signs, and then we get all these weird details. The author is showing us, despite the miraculous signs, Gideon's faith is weak. Gideon says, I'm not going to be your king, but he lives like a king. He wants the gold. He wants a lot of wives. He wants the notoriety of being a king. Abimelech means my father is king. That's what he names one of his sons. All of this creates a longing. I wish somebody would faithfully serve God and lead us. Right here, Midian's destroyed, but there's still idolatry in the land. There's idolatry because Gideon causes it. If you were an Israelite reading Judges, you would read this account and think, when will we have a king? When will we have somebody who's faithful, who's not timid, who obeys the Lord's word? Every single one of those signs pointed back to God's word. Every single one of them. And this is how we know this passage points us to Christ. Jesus is faithful to keep God's word. Yes, Jesus performed signs and wonders, but none of them were out of accord with God's word. They all pointed back to and confirmed God's word. So if you're not a believer this morning and you're thinking, I'll be a Christian if God would show me a sign, all the Christians in this room would say, hello, God has done that in Christ. God sent Christ to come and die for your sins and rise again. The sign of the cross and the resurrection is the greatest sign in history, and it confirms the word. If you trust in that, trust in what Jesus did there, your soul can be saved. So the message of what's happening here in Judges is that not that signs are evil, signs are good, but signs always point to God's word. Would you look to God's word? We're going to close our time this morning singing How Firm a Foundation. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Show me a sign, Lord. He's shown us in the Lord's Supper. He's shown us in the Word. He's shown us in Christ. What more do you need to see? Maybe you need to stop trying to see and hear. Because faith comes by hearing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us by your Word. Lord, calibrate our hearts to to welcome your supernatural activity in the world, but in a way that honors your word. Guard us from the temptation to to deny your word, deny signs, or, or go beyond them, or seek them in demanding them. Give us confidence in the beautiful wonder and mighty work, the sign of the cross. It's in the work and person of Christ that we pray. Amen.